Father, we begin with thanks uh, that you have caused us to make it through this pandemic, this challenging time, and Lord, much better for it. Thank you for using trials to bring us closer to completion and perfection. Lord, thank you for uh, your demonstration of unity through our two bodies coming together and worshiping you as one. Uh, when so much of the world is encouraged to and encouraging others to divide. Uh, we thank you for your intervention, and uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings together. Father, right now, as we approach the words of Isaiah uh, that you framed through him, uh, we ask that you would uh, prevent anything from being said or anything from being heard or anything from being thought that would be contrary to your truth and your character. We ask that you would guide us through our examination of this chapter and by the end cause us to be more in love with Christ and more like Christ himself. And we hand this time over to you. We hand ourselves over to you. Help us to relinquish all control and uh, place it in the hands of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. All right. If I move this here, can you still hear me okay? Okay. Last year about this time, I received, received an exhortation from a friend of mine to view a video on YouTube in which a pastor was describing a dream he had concerning the pandemic. This individual went on to describe total economic collapse and military takeover of our cities that would all take place by November of 2020. Well, here we are. We are not victims of a military regime, and we're all still spending money, right? So none of those things, looking back, ever took place on the scale predicted by this individual. On one hand, he warned that he was not claiming to be a prophet. On the other, he was clearly saying that God showed him these things and that the images and words were indeed directly from God. So whether he called himself a prophet or not, he functioned as one. After viewing this video that my friend told me to watch, I immediately called her back and I warned her to be very careful in hitching her wagon to this guy because even though he denies holding the office of prophet, he is indeed claiming to be one. And if what he is claiming God has told him fails to come, to tr fails to come true, he is to be considered a false prophet, which, by the way, is a crime under the old law worthy of execution. A couple days ago, I went on Google and just typed in prophets of Long Island. Whew. You can imagine what I ran into. I was curious to see what would appear and was concerned that what I would see was going to be in contradiction to God's word, needless to say. Well, I got exactly what I feared. What I saw was an endless list of prophets and prophetesses advertising their alleged gift and selling their fortune-telling services out for conferences, church speaking events, and even personal visits. Testimonies of those who had benefited from their service abounded, identifying fulfillments of prophecies that promised job opportunities, romantic relationships, and accumulated wealth. Interestingly enough, the service always came with some kind of a fee. Right? It makes me wonder if they would do that if they weren't getting paid. I don't know what was more disappointing, 
the number of individuals claiming to have the gift of prophecy and their blasphemous abuse of it, or the masses of churchgoers like us who could not wait to be in their presence to hear of their own self-indulgent gains. What a contrast to the prophets who were actually appointed by God in the scriptures. In our day, a prophet shows up and the masses can't wait to find out what their latest fortune will be, eagerly anticipating the good news of prosperity that God has for them. When a prophet showed up in the Bible, though, it was a different story. He did so because God's people were sinning and needed to be called to repentance in a message often filled with promises of punishment and discipline. Today's prophets seek and are given accolade and trinkets. Yesterday's prophets were given imprisonment, torture, and death. Today's prophets are more similar to the Psychic Friends Network and bear very little similarity to those who warn the people of turning away from God. Today's prophets receive strokes from individuals who have been lured into a false hope through horrible hermeneutics and false doctrine. Yesterday's prophets received lashes and beatings, all at their own expense because they would dare to accurately speak God's truth to and about whole nations, about national leaders, and about religious elitists who viewed themselves as above scrutiny. In running after the world's riches, though, today's prophets sacrificed the greatest reward that past prophets were blessed beyond measure to receive. And that was the honor of pointing authentic believers to the one who would save all peoples. Unlike modern prophecy that is sold like snake oil, the prophecies of old, while they did warn of horrible things to come as God responded to his idolatrous people, had the privilege to look beyond that punishment to the promised one who would come to save God's elect. A few years ago, we had a men's conference in which the central theme was, it's not about you. While you and I may benefit from the gospel, and we certainly do, it is not about us. Newsflash, <laughs> millennials. It's not about you. It's not about me. The gospel's not about us. We benefit, but it's not about us. It is about Christ. Always has been. We certainly benefit and have clear ways to apply it to our lives, but from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it all points to Christ. It is his story, not ours. Authentic biblical prophecy has the same characteristic. It is not about us. It is about Christ. True prophecy does indeed call God's people to repent when they are sinning, but that is because we are to be God's image bearers who portray a holy God to a fallen world through the way we conduct ourselves. True prophecy then points God's people to the source of their repentance and payment. In John 5.39, Jesus is rebuking the religious elite in the Jewish community because they were seeking to kill him for breaking the Sabbath. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Right? It's not about you. It's not about them. It's not about us. It's about Christ. In other words, you think that if you follow a bunch of do's and don'ts listed in the scriptures, you'll be right with God. But in doing so, you miss the actual message that Christ is the author of your salvation and rightness with God, not you. 
Biblical prophecy does not have a different objective from the rest of Scripture. It still bears witness of Christ. We've got to get that, or everything that we read from here on out in Isaiah will not make sense to us. Last week, our instruction was that to understand a text, we must first know to whom the text is addressed and about whom it is speaking. So, let's jump right in and take a look at that. The to whom it is written part is easy because we've already covered that. It was pointed out two weeks ago that in Isaiah 40, we turned the corner from a lot of pronounced judgment to hope. This is a message to God's chosen people, a people that I would argue span all human history and not, is not just limited to those of Isaiah's day. Therefore, the message is still relevant to us. What we focus on from this chapter, though, is the about whom this is written. So now, if you will, look in uh, Isaiah chapter 42, and we will begin. The text of Isaiah 42 begins this way. Behold. Let's stop there for a moment. It's too easy to run past this without considering what that means. And we shouldn't because it is of crucial importance that we understand this word because it has critical implications. This is an act of command. We are intended to obey something here by initiating action on it. We must, though, understand not just the command, but the intensity and urgency of the command. This is not just a casual viewing of something. There is a whole lot wrapped up into this mandate. Let me give you an illustration. We have a lot of squirrels running around in our front yard. I may look out the window one morning and say, look, there's a squirrel digging up the tulip bulbs out of my garden. And that's not imaginary, by the way. Now, let's change the scene a little bit. Let's pretend I look out the window and I see a 20-foot tall squirrel incinerating the oak tree in my front yard with flames spewing from his lungs. I would not with the same casual demeanor say, oh, look, a fire-breathing 20-foot tall squirrel. And there goes the oak tree. Rather, I would use language and intonation that emphasized the exclusive and urgent atten attention warranted by this beast. Attention that must be given due to the intrinsic significant consequences of not devoting such attention. You don't pay attention to that guy, you're in trouble. King Kong is not just a big monkey with a violent streak. Godzilla is not just a big lizard with a salivary disorder. Neither is this servant, who is the topic of Isaiah 42, just an extra talented or gifted person who does nice things for people. There's more here than meets the eye. Behold is more than just look. The author here is telling the reader to behold. This is not a suggestion to just physically see what is there. This is a command to set our attention upon such that we take special note of, perceive things about, contemplate, and study with intensity. It takes work. It is urgent and it is active, and rightly so because of the profound consequences of doing so, or might I add, the profound consequences of not doing so. Again, we must emphasize this is not a command to look at yourself. It's not a command for me to look at myself, like we've twisted prophecy into in this day. 
nor is it an allurement to dream of the wonderful things God has in store for you and your best life now. Behold, narrow your gaze upon with laser point accuracy. Be consumed with the image of. Contemplate the implications extenuating from this individual. Why? Great question, and we will answer this in a minute. But let me address something else. Behold whom? God's servant. This is the first mentioning in a series of passages of a coming one who Isaiah calls the servant. Interesting, this verse basically summarizes the entirety of all scripture such that from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God's people who are in a broken and failing world are called to turn their eyes, their trust, their dependence, and their worship from temporal things and place them upon the servant, Jesus Christ. There are four passages in Isaiah that have become identified as the servant songs. This is the first one, and they speak of one who will perfectly carry out his justice, perfectly manifest righteousness, perfectly adhere to God's covenant, and perfectly bring about redemption for God's people, all by perfectly obeying God's commands, or in other words, by being a perfect servant to God. Some have argued that Isaiah's servant refers to Israel or Jacob. In light of the characteristics attributed to the servant, in this particular passage, yet knowing Israel's chronic failure rate, this interpretation seems very unlikely, if not impossible. Some have argued this is referring to Cyrus. Again, because of the flawless nature attributed to the servant, Cyrus may be, at best, a type or a real-life picture of the coming true servant, but certainly does not meet much of the criteria necessary to be the Holy One of God. Stronger than either of those two arguments, though, is the one we should make in the first place, and that is that we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it perfectly clear who this servant is. In the 12th chapter of his Gospel, Matthew describes Jesus' response to knowing the Pharisees' plot to kill him for violating not the actual scriptures, but for their legalistic and manipulative spin on the scriptures. Starting in Matthew 12, 15, he says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Have you ever wondered why that's there? Why wouldn't he want to advertise that? This was to fulfill, though, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew goes on to quote the first part of Isaiah's chapter 42, verse 18 of uh, Matthew 12. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's where it gets interesting. Matthew clearly connects Isaiah's perfect servant to Jesus Christ. To consider this servant as anyone else would be to deem Matthew mistaken and to discredit the entirety of Matthew's gospel and in turn the entirety of scripture. 
Now that we've clearly established, though, that this passage is referring to Christ, we must understand what it is saying to us. Behold my servant. The word for servant used here is ebed. It is used in the scripture to mean a slave, a vassal king, or a tributary nation, all of which indicate an individual who is dependent on an authority and whose sole duty is one of servitude. Jesus refers to himself in such language in Matthew 20 and 23 and then again in Mark 9 and 10 as a servant. In Matthew 20, 26 through 28, he says, whoever desires to become great among you. Now filter this through our culture. <laughs> filter this through what's popular in our society and the way that we think power functions. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's not going to ask us to do something that he hasn't asked of himself. As a side note, and I, I do need to point this out, it will become relevant. Are we not to imitate Christ and to be Christ-like in all that we do? Well, some of us may say, and I've heard this a lot, what if someone does something incredibly wicked to me? Do you expect me to take it? No, but... I think the Lord does expect us to respond radically differently than what our culture tells us about the very people who drove the nails through his hands and feet and placed them on a cross to die for a crime he did not commit. He pleaded to the Father with, forgive them for they know not what they do. He could have obliterated them. He is more than just an example, though. An example of what humble servitude looks like. We are told to behold the servant because it is by his service that we are awakened to see our sin in the first place. It is by him and his service that we come to realize our need for a savior in the first place. It is through his service that we come to have saving faith in him and that we are made alive to grow in our relationship with God. Without his service to us, none of this is possible. We don't come to Christ because we're so smart and we figured it out. We come to Christ because he initiated the action and woke us up. Without that service, we would remain spiritually dead and completely blind and deaf to any message from God. In Isaiah's context, God's people were beholding idols of wood and stone. In Matthew's context, the religious leaders who were seeking to kill Jesus were beholding religious laws that they had added to the scriptures. Different in substance, but not in spirit. In both cases, the people were beholding impotent idols made by man that had no power to resurrect the soul, to convict, to save, nor to sanctify. He continues, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. Uphold in this context could mean to take care of, or it could mean to lean on, uh, as it was used in reference to a monarch leaning on his favorite courtier in a long procession. The former would indicate the son depending on care from the father 
The latter would indicate the father relying on the son for carrying out the, the duties characteristic of his role of providing salvation for the elect. It is difficult to tell from this passage which is the case. But either way, what we can conclude from what we read here is that there is a personal, unique, and loving relationship between the father and the son which is revealed further in the following. He continues, My chosen in whom my soul delights. As the chosen one in whom the Father delights, he has received special attention, special privilege, and special responsibility. Once again, this is about Christ, but those in him, those who follow him, do benefit. The whole of Scripture will demonstrate that this is a principle not just limited to the servant, but anyone who eventually finds himself in this servant. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because we are in him, we receive much of what he has received. Isaiah continues, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Holy Spirit is who manifests God's convictions and passions in whomever he resides. Christ, absolutely filled with the Holy Spirit and void of sin, can do no other than function in accordance with the heart and mind of the Father. One of those functions is to extend spiritual justice beyond the borders of Israel and extend it to the Gentiles, both near and far. As an important side note, there's another thing. We need to nail this truth down. The idea that there are different races is not a biblical one. This is a man's construct and has been used for evil throughout the ages. God did not create different races. Rather, he created one race. That one race being identified in the scriptures as the race of Adam. However, he did in Genesis 10 create the table of nations as a result of, of the great division resulting from the Tower of Babel. For example... It is likely that my ancestors were dancing around a bunch of pine trees in the forests of Central Europe at this time, worshiping false nature gods that really didn't exist. What placed them in jeopardy was not their volume of melanin, but their geography, their language, and their pagan worship of false deities, thus including them in the vast collection of what Isaiah calls the nations. So the mindset at this time was, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile, and Gentile is everybody else. From the great Babylonian division, God would single out a people, though, for himself with whom he would strive for centuries. At this time, when Isaiah is speaking his prophecy, the nation of Israel is viewed exclusively as God's chosen people. While we hear this phrase used a lot, we rarely ask the important question, though, chosen for what? Romans tells us that they were chosen to receive the oracles of God. We also know that it is from the nation of Israel that the Savior would come. 
Upon the completion of the servant's work on the cross, though, salvation would then be extended to all nations, as witnessed in Acts, where the confusion of the languages that occurred in Babel was reversed, and when everyone present was hearing the gospel preached in their own tongue, thus marking the initiation of the justice promised in this portion of Isaiah's prophecy. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. The communication and convincing of the truth in the heart of man is done via an internal change initiated by the Holy Spirit. It is not the result of aggressively loud words produced by man. We tend to think that if we fail to demand someone's attention by shouting over the noise pollution, and if we use the right words, then we will have failed to use that which will convince others to follow God. The eternal soul of man is not convinced that way. God too often fails to realize, or we too often fail to realize, that it is the Holy Spirit that speaks to the heart to bring about conviction, not man who speaks to the ear or writes to the eye. In the same way that he does not accomplish his objectives by lording over, but by serving, he communicates via that still small voice and does not rely on pompous announcements and deafening shrillness that demands to be heard. Neither our ears nor our reasoning are what need to be convinced when we come to Christ. It is our spirit that he rejuvenates in the quietness of our own being. From verse 5 to 9, the Lord proceeds to remind the people who he is, calling them to follow and trust him as it is he who created the heavens and the earth, that it is he who gives physical breath and spiritual life to his people, and that it is he who gives this servant to the people for care, protection, as a covenant, and to be a light to all peoples, that it is he who will cause the blind to see and the imprisoned to be set free, that it is he who will allow no glory to be given to another. In verses 10 through 17, they then tell us of a new song that will be sung to the Lord as a result of extending his good news to all nations. The old songs were to false gods who were taskmasters, unreliable and unknowable, leaving the people uncertain as to their whim. Song was used to appeal and to plead in hopes of possibly appeasing such deities. This new song is one of praise, and it will come from people living as far as the east is from the west and as far as the up is from the down. In other words, all peoples. Verse 18 through 25 end this chapter with a very sad but very important clarification. We are reminded here of Israel's continued failure to see and here. As a result, they will face plundering and looting, but they are not victims. This text spells out very clearly why this is happening. Isaiah rhetorically asks in verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? This is where many people uh, of our day that I would speak with say, the devil is doing this, or we are under the devil's attack. Believe me, with the pandemic, I heard that ad infinitum. We must be very careful, though, not to give the wrong guy the glory when tragedy strikes. Isaiah answers his own question. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways we would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? 
So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle, and set, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Merry Christmas. Have a nice week. What a way to end a chapter, right? Well, while the heat of God's anger may have felt like living fire for those who received it, there is even hope in that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This brings clarity to what Peter said earlier in his writing in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All this heat that they're going through, is all designed to point them in one direction, to the cross. So, what is our take-home from this passage? We've all been created to worship. It's an innate quality. It's an innate drive. You will worship. I will worship. Where sin perverts things is the way it directs our worship. And oftentimes our, our our worship is directed to the wrong things. In verse 17, this is a warning to us. Isaiah says, on behalf of God, they shall be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Now it's doubtful that any of us really have molten gods or things carved out of wood that we have sitting around our house anymore that we worship. But, as was said before, our hearts are idol-making machines. And we may not worship tangible things sitting on our dresser, but we may worship other things. Could be in programming, could be money, could be status. Could be my well-being, my rights, my my, 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 my stuff. God never intended for me to worship myself. And unfortunate, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, fortunately, his response to those who do worship things, and we all need to be careful with this, is we will be turned back and utterly put to shame. On the good side, God is refining his idolatrous people through discipline. His people continuously fail to get it. I do not sit in judgment of them. I continuously fail to get it. Amen? He must, therefore, he must, therefore, produce the solution or remedy uh, this, the problem himself. And the way that he goes about doing that is by sending that servant who will serve both man and God to bring about understanding, sanctification, maturity, and the required holiness of God's people. Amen? All right, let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and that you are a merciful God. Lord, we acknowledge right now that you have every right to obliterate each and every one of us uh, as we have gone astray. Lord, we acknowledge that we have a whole string of idols. And it may not be tangible by hand or by eye, but they're there. I ask, Lord, that you would move in on each one of us with your Holy Spirit and draw our attention to where those idols are and give us the wisdom and the strength to repent of those idols, to throw them in the Kidron Valley, burn them to ashes, and seek our complete fulfillment, pursue our complete dependence on your servant who paid for that to happen. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that we wouldn't just walk away from what we've seen in your, God, in your word, uh, that we would forget about it. Uh, I do pray, Lord, that you would continuously throughout today bring it to mind through our discussions with each other, uh, through the moving of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. And uh, Lord, please uh, use this word combined with your spirit to refine us and sanctify us throughout today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to enter into your throne room uh, to no credit to ourselves, but that is by your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we give you all the thanks and all the glory in his name. Amen.